Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Angkor is an archaeological site in northern Cambodia and was home to the impressive capitals of the Khmer Empire between the 9th and 15th centuries. It is one of the most important archaeological sites in Southeast Asia, and my guest today has been involved in an ongoing project to recreate Angkor virtually. Dr. Bernard Keogh is a lecturer in archaeology and history at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Bernard. Uh, thanks for the invite, Matt. So if we could begin with a, a bit of context, tell me about the Khmer Empire and how significant was it to the region? Yeah, of course. So the Khmer Empire, or most of my colleagues in archaeology now refer to it as the Angkorian Empire because um, new studies have demonstrated that beyond the Khmer sort of ethnic group, there are sort of uh, significant minorities of Thai, Cham, and other kind of minorities within the empire. So it was quite multicultural. So I think uh, Khmer Empire is how we most know the empire, but Angkorian Empire is the more historically accurate way to refer to it, as my colleagues often correct me on that one. Let me adjust all my questions. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's all good. Um, I think it's sort of interchangeable in public discourse, but my colleagues who are more learned and focused on Cambodian history often correct me when I say Khmer Empire instead of Angkorian Empire, so it's it's become a kind of recurring theme for me. Mm. Um, But in terms of sort of its importance, it's one of the major policies in Southeast Asia during the period that you outlined from the 9th to the 15th century, although it sort of undergoes, and we'll talk about this more later potentially, civilizational collapse towards the kind of 14th century, but it it sort of drags on until the 15th century. Yeah. But it's a really important policy in the sense that it's one of the major polities and it sort of dominates a significant proportion of Southeast Asia, stretching from what we know today as modern Cambodia to parts of uh, Myanmar to the sort of opposite coast. So sort of the Indo-Chinese peninsula, pushing down towards southern Thailand, close to what we know today as Malaysia. And its kind of relationship with the rest of the region was that it wasn't necessarily always the dominant power. It was a very important and influential force, but it did have rivals in the sense of the Champa, which are sort of based in Indochina as well, but also it had sort of interesting relationship with Srivijaya and Java in the Indonesian archipelago. And the other reason why the Angkorian Empire is important is also because of its longstanding relationship with China. It was part of the broader tributary system that China operated for many centuries and through many dynasties, where various polities in Southeast Asia and beyond would pay tribute to China and in exchange would receive gifts from the Chinese emperor, but also would receive approval, right, as part of the Chinese world order, the Chinese system of uh, managing states where the Middle Kingdom has the mandate of heaven, and therefore the emperor is in charge of everything on earth. And for policies like the Angkorian Empire, the strategy there, and for other policies is to pay tribute to the emperor in exchange for being selected as the appropriate ruler for their particular civilizations. So it's important because of its connections globally, but also on a regional level, it's sort of one of the, the major powers in play at that time. Mm. It's terrible to compare these sort of things, but when sure. you put it in context of like uh, different ancient civilizations that you have in, in Europe or over in South America or anything like that, what would you comparably put it on the level to for its significance? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm not sure what policies would be in operation roughly around the same time. But in terms of sort of significance, I guess like one telling thing would be at its height, Angkor, the capital city of the Angkorian Empire, which is what it's named after, Mm. has about one million people living within it. So it's the biggest medieval city in operation at roughly around that same time. So it definitely had a major kind of 
influence on the region and beyond. Um, but in terms of sort of comparative, I think the closest equivalent that I've seen is comparable size with the Byzantine Empire. Mm. So you've been part of the Virtual Angor Project, which aims to recreate or give an impression of how this civilization was and what the area was like in Angkor. So can you tell me about that and how you got involved in the project and what your part of it is? Yeah, of course. So the project is basically the brainchild of one of my colleagues in the faculty of IT at Monash University, Dr. Tom Chandler. And I got involved in this, sort of funnily enough, as a research assistant for a, another historian, Professor Adam Clulo, who used to be at Monash as well, but is now at the University of Texas at Austin. And they were interested in kind of using this as a new tool for the digital humanities. Tom's been working on the visualization of Angkor for about a decade and a half now on the basis of the available evidence and sort of uh, rejigging it on the basis of new evidence being provided. But I got involved as sort of just like a research assistant to help out with some of the history side of things. But then because of my interest in video games and sort of all this technological wizardry that Adam used to describe it as, they put me onto the team in terms of developing uh, what became the open access digital humanities teaching platform, Virtual Anchor, which is the website and platform that you see today. The general idea for Virtual Anchor, as distinct from the Anchor visualization, is that it's designed to provide from primary school or elementary school mm. you know, level and beyond to give a sense of the Angkorian Empire and its importance in not just regional Southeast Asia, but also globally as well. And it's kind of a fascinating story from various perspectives in terms of environmental relationships in the sense of the way that water and hydrology is used in the Angkorian Empire. But it's also important in terms of the international relations at the time in the sort of the medieval period between various polities in Southeast Asia, but also beyond that in East Asia as well with, with search. China in particular. So the kind of idea for that is to kind of just demonstrate a new way of doing history publicly, right? So yeah. we need to go beyond the academy and we need to kind of engage a wider audience as part of our prerogative as educators. Mm. So the project sounds like a challenging undertaking and I see two distinct parts of it when you are trying to recreate something like this virtually. One is, is working out how the city looked virtually and I gather this involves scanning and measuring and uh, using geophys and aerial photography and those kind of things to work out the layout and how buildings and structures would look like in the city because the ruins of Angkor are, are quite extensive. Yeah. Not that I've ever been there, but I'm sure you can tell me more about that. And the other part of that is uh, the virtual environment kind of window dressing, so the people, the sounds that you would have there and uh, the life of the place, just general things like textures and you wouldn't be able to have smell, I imagine, but that's the, no, the that's next uh, technological <laughs> development to come in a virtual reality kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, smell-o-vision. Yeah. <laughs> Can we start by talking about how you physically recreate a site like this? What sort of elements are going into it? What are you working with for that? Sure. Uh, so I'll have to give credit to my colleagues in archaeology that did the heavy work in, mm. in terms of heavy lifting and sort of shout out to Martin Polkinghorn from Flinders University, who's our archaeological partner on Virtual Anchor and, and has really shaped the way that we view archaeological data, but also has been really integral in sort of making sure that uh, whatever we develop is as, as historically accurate in terms of uh, visual representation, but also in terms of the lesson modules that we put up on, on the platform as well. A lot of this is built off the archaeological evidence that has been derived by sort of scholars like Martin himself, but also Roland Fletcher and Damon Evans at the University of Sydney and, and various other kind of archaeologists from various sort of institutions. For example, the EFEO, the École de Français Extreme Orient, the French studies of the Far East and, and historical 
archaeological data from luminaries like Bernard Grosselier. So a lot of the data in terms of what we use to visualize the city is in terms of LIDAR, so sort of um, capturing aerial photography and doing deep scans of the environment in order to reveal stuff underlying the growth of plants. One example I'll give is that Historically, people have kind of seen Angkor as just a religious structure, Mm. but LIDAR scans have demonstrated that there were settlements around Angkor. We were only able to derive this information from ground-penetrating LIDAR, which sort of went beyond the... It it bounces a laser signal off any like um, subterranean structures like uh, buried ruins or anything like that, and you can see the line in a wall. And yeah. suddenly what is uh, an existing temple ruin becomes an entire complex. Yeah, exactly. And because a lot of construction, and this is one of the interesting things about the Ancoran Empire, is that most of the construction that we see that remains today made out of stone, obviously that's designed to stand the test of time. But ordinary places, they tend to be made out of wood. And so obviously wood decays over time. We do have some evidence of that. But the key way that we are able to derive this is through stuff like LIDAR and and sort of like being able to see beyond the overgrowth in order to see settlement patterns. But the other kind of major source that we use is also historical records. So one major text is uh, Zhou Dagwan's Record of Cambodia. He's a Chinese traveler who spends a year or so in Cambodia as a kind of uh, guest of the emperor. He writes this fantastic travel record of his interpretations of Cambodian society at the time. And it's quite fascinating, but also has to be read of a critical lens through the lens of a Chinese traveler. It's not. It's an outsider coming in. Exactly. But it definitely gives sort of like some interesting insights into the way that the city operates, but also a lot of these beautiful descriptions of how the palace actually was constructed and how sort of like the palace was made out of wood rather than stone, but also sort of descriptions of the temples in their prime as opposed to sort of, you know, the remains that we see today. Mm. In terms of other sources, there's also the the bas-reliefs carved onto the structures themselves. So especially with the temples of Angkor, you see sort of like these massive carvings that tell a history of Cambodia. A lot of it is sort of mythological, but you can read between the lines and sort of like uh, cross-reference it with historical records. You can read mythology as history in a lot of senses as well. And we see this in uh, lots of different settings, not just in, in Cambodia. So a lot of it is sort of bringing together all these kind of disparate sources in order to build this visualization of the city. And some of it is done quite imaginatively as well. So this is less me and more Tom and the IT team, but one of the things that they oftentimes do is also they use 3D scanners in order to scan those bas-reliefs and input them into the program itself, but also to scan historical artifacts. There's a, shall we say, storied history of things being taken away from Angkor by less scrupulous collectors um, (laughs) that, that you can find all over the world. And if you're not able to access Angkor, like we haven't been able to for the past couple of years because of COVID. Um, One of the kind of workarounds that Tom and the team managed to sort of come up with was using the artifacts that are in places that they probably shouldn't be Mm -hmm. to kind of develop those 3D recreations. So how do you go about fleshing out those and putting the small details on it, the sort of things that you aren't going to find in historical records? How are those decisions come to you know, you've got everything from the furniture to what people are wearing and those sort of things. I know that you might find some sort of record indication on it, but a lot of these are very educated guesses. Yeah, a lot of the information that we have about 
the way people dressed and the way that people sort of operated, that is built on the basis of Chotakwan's observations of Cambodian life. But mm. a lot of it is also derived from some available archaeological data in the sense of leftover shirts, sort of like little tiny fragments of artifacts rather than whole artifacts themselves. Yeah. So you can sort of derive some information from that. But as you said, a lot of it is also sort of making quite educated guesses on the basis of working with our colleagues in archaeology who have done the work and have developed a very strong hypotheses and use the available data to make this kind of assumption about how things might have functioned. But also a lot of it can be derived from modern Khmer culture in the sense that obviously it will have undergone some changes over time. But in saying that a lot of Khmer culture today is derived from Khmer culture back then as well. So you are able to kind of draw a line. We must admit that it may not necessarily be 100% the same but you can sort of draw some parallels between contemporary Khmer culture and historical Khmer culture in order to develop these kinds of ideas about how things would have functioned at the time. And sort of the written records of the bar reliefs also tell us a lot in the sense that they're quite intricate. So the Bayon, which is one of the major temples with quite substantial bar reliefs, it's a very intricate, and I'd really encourage people to take a look on the platform itself, but also to take a look at photos of the bar reliefs. You can really see the detail of For example, in terms of what we know about how war was conducted in the Angkorian Empire, you can see elephants that are carved into the bas-reliefs and can see the intricacy of the way in which the elephants were mounted. And you can see the intricacies of the weapons that were used and that sort of thing as well. So you can derive a lot from the visual material that's available from that as well. And then that's what we've done is to try and translate what's basically gray stone into sort of like a colorful recreation of life at the time. And something that historians often do is we use what Tom Griffiths, the eminent Australian historian, describes as the kind of historical imagination. You mm. do have to have a level of imagination in order to think about how the past function in time, especially when you don't have visual sources. Yeah. So how do you come up with something like the sound in the virtual reality simulations? Yeah. So this, again, I'll have to give credit to Tom and the archaeology team for that one. What they did was they did intense field work in Cambodia several years where they kind of just recorded the sounds of everyday life in modern Cambodia and sort of like translated that into the recreation. So obviously they chose not to include anachronistic things, but with things like, for example, traditional workshops and how they function, they recorded those sounds and kind of mediated them and put them onto Mm. the visualization but also things like simple things like the sounds of nature that's fairly easy you just record a kingfisher the local birds and yeah, exactly yeah humming and then you input that in order to create texture right like um, tom really loves using this description where you've got to add texture into the visualization because it's one thing to see things but you really got to engage the other sense and you can also sort of get descriptions from various historical records. Again, Zhou Daguan, we we really use the record of Cambodia quite a bit in sort of our understanding of Cambodian culture. So you can derive those ideas of how things might have sounded and how things might have looked on the basis of of that record. Okay, so the project recreates Angkor quite specifically around the the 1300s, it seems, uh, by our calendar. So why does it tie to this time when there is quite a long span of history for the empire? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the main reason why we focus on Angkor in the 14th century and the 1300s is that that's kind of the peak. That's just before it encounters a collapse. And the leading hypothesis at the moment is that changes in the weather, the sort of uh, medieval warm period results in heavy rainfall 
much heavier than usual, which results in the collapse of the hydrological systems that ran Angkor. So one of the major features of the Angkorian Empire was the really clever use of engineering in order to use water in these complex ways. So there's two major storage points of water called barres, the East Barre and the West Barre. And across the entirety of Angkor, you see this complex system of canals and the movement of water that's used as transportation for people, but also goods, Mm. agricultural purposes as well. But what happens is with the change in the weather and sort of the increase in rainfall, it ends up overwhelming the complex hydrological system that Angkor relied upon. And so we picked the 13th century as a way to kind of demonstrate it at its peak, but also use it as a kind of abject lesson, because one of the modules, we explore the Angkorian relationship with, there's a sound idea in the sense that we tend to geoengineer around current circumstances. But when those circumstances change, that sort of has massive flow on impacts as well. So it's a kind of way of demonstrating one, a empire at its peak, but also two, what lessons can we derive from this in terms of how the changing nature of the environment results in quite dramatic changes for the empire itself as well. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you hope people will take notice of or uh, be able to spot when they're using the resources that you've developed. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought up sound because that's one of the major things that we'd really love people to pay attention to. So obviously, when you look at those 360 videos on the platform, pump up the volume, turn it up to 11. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and sort of listen in and and hear the sounds of, of Cambodian life. But the other thing to kind of keep an eye out on that I think is important is rather than just sort of use the platform itself, really consider taking a look at the scholarship that underpins this as well, in the sense that a lot of the archaeological data is actually openly available. The articles that we use to sort of build the platform are available Mm. for free as well. They can be sort of difficult to parse sometimes in terms of the technical language, and that's part of the reason why Virtual Angkor exists, is to kind of translate this from archaeological-specific, discipline-specific language into more accessible language. But I really encourage people to take a look at it because it's really fascinating, and you learn way more about the empire more than sort of the platform itself. But obviously, spend time on the platform, but also check the sources. That's always a good thing to do. And the other thing is to go through the modules. I spend a lot of time working on those modules, so I really love it that people actually spend time going through those modules carefully as well. One of the things that I really love about this project and the the technology that it builds on is that Angkor is a civilization that I know very little about outside, you know, a passing familiarity that there is a temple called Angkor Wat and it's quite great if I ever get the chance to go to Cambodia, go and see that. This gives me the chance to become familiar with a different civilization, a different empire than I would normally have exposure to because civilizations and ancient empires in Europe uh, and, say, Egypt and those sort of things get quite a lot of the, the airtime. They get quite a lot of exposure, but not so much the Angkor Empire. Do you think that this is one of the best ways to get familiar with something like that that you're not familiar with? Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so in the sense that the scholarship of the Angkorian Empire has been around for ages. But as you said, it has never quite entered the popular imagination beyond maybe a stray reference to like, oh, there, Angkor Wat, that's a, one of the wonders of the world, right? Mm. But it is definitely important to engage the public and for them to get a sense of the complex histories in various regions beyond sort of what we already know about, for example, the Roman Empire or the various Egyptian dynasties. And these are fascinating stories and, and I'm a bit biased because I'm from Southeast Asia myself. So I think sort of the history of Southeast Asia is important. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about it, not just in terms of the interest 
interesting notion of Southeast Asian history in and of itself, but also in terms of global comparisons, because going back to what we were talking about earlier, in terms of looking at parallels, it's important to try and think about the ways in which uh, lots of these policies were operating roughly at the same time. Um, not all of them interacted with each other, but I think it's important to get a sense of the wider world, right? Projects like this and digital humanities more broadly is a really great way to go beyond kind of cloistered halls of the academy to mm. actually engage with what should be our audience, which is everyone. Like anyone that has an interest should really have the opportunity to learn this stuff. They don't have to necessarily go through a four-year degree to understand the language of archaeology or history to understand the past. It should be freely accessible to as many people as possible. And I think it's taken on an additional contemporary relevance ever since lockdowns and travel bans of the past couple of years. I think there's something to be said about privilege as well, in the sense that obviously, if you have the capacity and resources to see Angkor in real life, that, that would be amazing. But not everybody does have that. Now, increasingly, lots of people have internet connections. And so I think this is a really great way to democratize history and archaeology as well, in the sense that more and more people are able to see this virtually rather than having to pay thousands of dollars for a ticket, which is also not great for the environment in terms of travel. Um, but we'll put that aside briefly. I think it's important to allow people to have exposure to all these ideas and to all these different parts of history. Mm-hmm. It gives an interesting uh, different way of looking at the evidence as well, because when you've got something that is uh, in a display cabinet at a museum, you're told how it is used, but you don't get to see it. Being able to create it virtually, you can see how an object is put to use. You can see how it interacts with people in the environment around it. You're being presented with an extra way to interpret these kind of things rather than just seeing something in a display case or going to a ruin. You're getting that life aspect of it back in some aspects. That's exactly one of the sort of major draws of the digital humanities for me as a budding digital humanities scholar as well. I think like it's a really transformative way of understanding the past in the sense that we can interact with it in a way that we've never been able to before. And we can interact with the past in terms of like interacting with the primary sources and that sort of thing. But being able to visualize this to basically show how history might have happened, because I'll, I'll put the disclaimer there that a lot of this is built on like really sound hypotheses and based on the available evidence, but it does take a certain leap as well. Um, but it's a really fascinating way to look at history as a kind of construct rather than just a thing that's happened like Mm. you know one of my favorite descriptions of the past is the past is another country and so this is a way to kind of access that country in a way that's that's sort of more available to a wider range of people i'm really excited about the development of the digital humanities as a space for us to engage with the past in different ways but to also engage with people and get them to engage with the past in these different ways as well Dr. Bernard Keo, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in a multitude of accessible podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. Uh, You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. And you can check out Virtual Anchor at virtualanchor.com. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.